0: The History Channel original podcast.
1: Sports history this week, October 6th, 1965. I'm Kalen Jones. For baseball fans, it's the most sacred time of the year, the World Series. The Dodgers are in Minneapolis, the face-off against the Minnesota Twins in game one. Most sports bettors have their money on the Dodgers. It's the Twins' first time making it to the World Series. They've been playing in cold, rainy Minneapolis weather for weeks, and fans are worried that'll last for the big game. But on that sunny fall Wednesday, it's a mild 70 degrees. A perfect day for a ball game. But when the Dodgers take the field, someone's missing. Their star pitcher, Sandy Koufax, is not on the mound. Because today is also sacred for another reason. It isn't just Game 1 of the World Series. It's Yom Kippur. The Jewish Day of Atonement. The holiest day in the Jewish calendar. And Koufax has decided he's not going to play. On baseball's biggest stage. Today, who is Sandy Koufax? And how, in his too short career, did he fundamentally shape baseball and American Jewish life? In the late 90s, sports writer Jane Levy started working on a biography of Sandy Koufax. At that point, he'd been out of the public eye for 30 years,
3: which only seemed to add to his legend. He had become a new patriarch of the Old Testament, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, and Sandy.
1: Levy never thought she'd be able to reach Koufax, but one day she came home to a voicemail.
3: Hi, Ms. Levy. And he said, Ms. And he said, Levy, which was astonishing. That's how I was sure he was Jewish. Anyway, he said, this is uh, Sandy. And no last name. You know, he's on a first name basis with the world. Koufax told Levy, I'd still prefer the book not be written. But if it's going to be done, I want it to be done the right way.
1: Levy spoke to childhood friends, teammates, coaches, all of them willing to talk because Koufax said so.
3: Oral Hershizer who was a Dodger pitcher, followed in Sandy's footsteps. He says, you don't understand. It means far more to me to be Sandy's friend than to be in your book. I'd heard that from a lot of people by then.
1: With Koufax's cooperation, Levy busted open the vault containing his story.
4: The blind pitching of Sandy Koufax. The incomparable Koufax.
1: And that story starts in Brooklyn, New York in the 1940s.
3: That was Brooklyn before everybody decided to leave Brooklyn and now come back to Brooklyn.
1: That Brooklyn is full of Jewish immigrants. Some estimates put nearly a third of all Brooklynites as Jewish in 1940. Koufax spends his childhood in a neighborhood called Bensonhurst, where he plays sports at the local Jewish community house. Goes with his grandfather to see Yiddish Theater. But he isn't bar
3: mitzvah. Not a practicing, you know, gotta be at Shabbat services Every Friday night, kind of Jew. One of
1: Koufax's high school classmates described it as being Jewish by osmosis. You grew up in a shtetl. In other words, spending your childhood in a Jewish community means your religion shapes you culturally, whether you go to Temple
0: or not. And in some ways, the local ball club is a religion in and of itself. The Brooklyn Dodgers are one of the most storied franchises in Major League history. That's Mark Langel, the official Dodgers team historian. I'm actually an
1: opening day baby. I was born the home opener in 65. And he's pretty much been studying for the job ever since. He's a walking repository of Dodger stats. I've got
0: 131 teams in my rearview mirror. And he told us, out of all the years the Brooklyn Dodgers make it to the World Series... 16, 20, 41, 47, 49, 52, 53, what do they have in common? They lost every year, and it's wait till next year. They had this underdog mentality because they haven't won a championship yet. That underdog mentality resonates in a place like Brooklyn, full
1: of Jews who'd fled persecution, but also Italians and Black people. The Dodgers were the team to break baseball's color barrier by bringing up Jackie Robinson in 1947.
0: Brooklyn was pretty much the only city because of its diverse background where you'd be able to have an integrated roster.
3: What did the Dodgers mean to Brooklyn? Everything. Jane Levy again. What did the Dodgers mean to Sandy Koufax in particular? I don't know. Not so much, maybe.
1: Because Koufax doesn't see a future for himself on a baseball diamond. When he goes to college, he walks onto the basketball team.
3: He had... Huge hands and big, you know, white boy vertical leap. It was astonishing. He actually played against the Knicks once.
1: But in the second half of his freshman year, he hears that the baseball team is going to New Orleans for spring break.
3: And he said, hmm, what's better? Bensonhurst in March or someplace warm? (laughs) So he, he joined the baseball team.
1: And it turns out he has a great arm. So great that in 1955... When he's still a student, he catches the attention of recruiters from the Brooklyn Dodgers.
3: Dodgers were desperately needing attendance and part of what <laughs> mattered was having a nice Jewish boy on the roster. Even if you never played him, it was nice to have him there.
1: The Dodgers offered Kofax a $14,000 signing bonus. And at the time, Major League Baseball had this rule about what they called bonus babies. It said any player who gets more than $4,000 needs to skip the minor leagues and go straight to the majors. Koufax is the Dodgers' only bonus baby signed that year. What was his reputation like within the team?
3: Well, he was resented.
1: Other players are getting traded to make roster space for this bonus baby.
0: Suddenly, you're this new kid You're at the major league level. Colfax is kind of caught in a catch twenty-two situation because are you really gonna say, you know, hello, I don't know how to pitch. I because of my contract, I have to be on the roster, but I wondered if anybody is around here that can help me pitch. Colfax is raw. He has a great arm, but he's wildly inconsistent. There's this legend for the first few years he couldn't hit the side of a barn in terms of his control. But he's powerful. In his rookie season, the stats aren't very impressive, but there's this lingering sense of his potential. That really was the tough word in the 1950s for Sandy. Look at this potential. Look at this potential. And that's got to be the toughest thing for anybody because you have success in flashes. You're frustrated. The fans are frustrated. And he really doesn't have that much room to work with as far as to find himself. But 1955,
1: Koufax's first year on the team, is a good time to be a Brooklyn Dodger they've made it to the World Series against their biggest rivals, the New York Yankees.
4: Let's face it, the whole town's got baseball rhythm.
0: Remember, Brooklyn was a neighborhood ballpark, and they haven't won a championship yet.
4: Will they finally win a world championship? Ask anybody in Brooklyn, they're sure it'll happen. They
0: hope... They have this great rivalry in the World Series against the Yankees.
4: It's a tense struggle into the last of the night.
0: Sandy is about to join the biggest party ever.
4: Wait until next year, the fans cried. Today, it's the year.
0: When Brooklyn wins their first and only championship in Colfax's rookie season in 1955.
4: The Dodgers have done it. Unpredictable darlings of the baseball world. In the
1: words of writer Ronald Sanders, the triumph reverberated through Flatbush like
0: a return to Zion. But then... Three years later, more heartbreak. They leave town and go to Los Angeles. If you ask any Brooklyn
1: Dodgers fan, they'll tell you. The Dodgers leaving Brooklyn feels devastating and personal. But the decision came down to logistics. They needed a bigger stadium. And L.A. made an offer the team couldn't resist.
0: Before Ebbets Field would hold 30, 31,000 fans, very first day in 1958 opening day Dodgers and Giants, 78,000 fans at the Coliseum. And things really change for the franchise because instead of this neighborhood, New York type of team, suddenly it's Hollywood. Bright lights, huge crowds, and all this change to the Dodger franchise? It coincides with the development of Sandy, Koufax's pitching still isn't quite there yet. But Sandy's also very good looking. Suddenly, he's with Milton Berle and on TV and doing movies and cameos. I have your eye breath, Mr. Koufax. All
4: right, Sandy, nice and easy, huh, buddy?
0: Come on,
3: would you have rather been an incredibly handsome bachelor in Bensonhurst with your parents or in Los Angeles?
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, Koufax is still trying to perfect the thing he was hired for pitching.
3: He had this golden arm with lightning in it, but he hadn't tamed it, and he didn't know how to
0: control it. In his first 691 innings, he's got 405 walks, and that's the thing that you can't defend against, the walk. Then one
1: day in 1961, something big happens.
0: Ed Palmquist is an obscure pitcher in Dodger history But Ed Palmquist made a wonderful contribution to the Dodgers in 1961 by missing a spring training flight to Orlando.
1: The Dodgers are supposed to face the Minnesota Twins in a spring training B game.
3: Often teams split up and play two games during spring training in order to get everybody some action, but you don't want to be the guy, the only pitcher basically, for a B game. Koufax is
1: that guy. Because Palmquist... That obscure pitcher was apparently hung over and
0: missed the team's flight. Plus, the coaches aren't there. The manager's not there. The clubhouse attendant is going to sort of be the, the makeshift trainer. The game starts out like Koufax's career to that point, slowly and not very well. He walks the bases loaded in the first inning. So the catcher, Norm Sherry, pulls Koufax aside he says to Sandy, for God's sake, Sandy,
3: I'll throw a goddamn strike. You know, we're going to be here all day. Just relax. Let them hit the ball. Koufax goes back to the mound, frustrated. You want me to just throw the ball in? Okay, I'll do that. I'll let him hit it. He strikes out one
0: batter. Fine, hit it. And the next. Fine, hit it. He strikes out the rest of the batting order. Comes back to the dugout and sees an astonished look on Norm Sherry's face. And Norm Sherry is like, what did you just do? You're actually throwing better. That ball is hopping and it's jumping. And, you know, I'm not trying to kid you. Something has happened. It's one of those paradoxical things about baseball.
3: You hit best when you are not gripping the wood of the bat so tight that your muscles muscle up. And you throw better when you're not trying to throw every pitch
0: 100 miles an hour. Just imagine, I think, if you're driving and you're barely holding the steering wheel as opposed to grabbing the steering wheel for dear life. Mentally, it just had to be a case of just trusting himself and letting the rest of his body in motion, kind of like a catapult. The rest of that game, nobody can
3: hit any of Koufax's pitches. It's like he's cracked the code to that elusive potential. And Sandy Koufax became Sandy Koufax. That was the turning point.
1: Levy describes Koufax's pitching motion like a type of fluid
3: poetry, maybe a modern dance. He's unspeakably beautiful. The um, arch of his chest as he's reaching back and the elbow all the way up like near his ear.
1: He figures out this way to throw a ball so fast and so hard to predict.
3: And a batter literally wouldn't be able to tell whether the ball was going to drop like a cheap folding chair or whether it was... And they all swear it went up. Physics says he can't go up. But they all say, no, no, physics is wrong. Sandy's fastball went up. And once he could replicate that motion, I think they may have been just so dazzled by the beauty of what he was doing that they didn't know what to do. Koufax's teammates
1: can hardly believe what they're seeing. He goes from relief pitcher to star attraction.
0: He was really the first... True super superstar in Southern California sports.
1: With this new and improved Koufax on the mound, in October 1963, the Dodgers once again make it to the World Series, and once again they're facing the Yankees. Now they're cross-country
0: rivals.
4: The opening game of the World Series as the New York Yankees meet the Los
0: Angeles Dodgers. There's You're playing at Yankee Stadium. You're against your traditional rival. You're back home. Even Yankee fans are rooting for Koufax to break the strikeout record, and
4: he does it by fanning the last man, pinch hitter Harry Bright. Koufax was the man with
1: the golden arm. In Game 1, he sets the record for most strikeouts in a World Series
0: game. That's one of the pinnacle moments of his career. And in Game 4, Koufax seals the sweep. Never before in history had
4: the Yankees lost a series in four straight, and these are the men who
1: did it. Koufax is unanimously voted that year's Cy Young Award winner, given the baseball's top pitcher. He's also voted
0: National League MVP. He's the best player in baseball. He's on the top of the world. Rob Sandy Koufax, a man who made toothpicks
1: out of the mighty Yankee bats. But now, his mindset isn't standing in the way of being a great pitcher. It's his body.
0: You know, something starts to break here. Something starts to ache. He's got a circulatory problem. As early
1: as 1962, the index finger on his pitching hand starts feeling numb. In 64, Koufax injures his elbow, diving back to a base, and sees the team doctor.
0: And that's when they diagnosed the arthritis. After each game,
1: Koufax is rushed to an ice bath, slathered in a burning sort of balm.
0: An extract
3: of hot red chili peppers called capsulin. Lou Johnson once borrowed his sweatshirt on a cold night and ended up throwing up in left field because it was so hot.
1: Some days, Koufax wakes up with his elbow swollen like a water balloon. The doctors drain it of fluid, then send him back out onto the field.
3: Sandy'd have his elbow in a cooler of ice, and this was what passed for sports medicine. He kept it in as long as it took to drink three beers. Going
1: into the 1965 season, no one knows how Koufax's body is going to handle things. But on September 9th...
2: It is 9.46 p.m.
1: Koufax is pitching against the Cubs.
2: Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and miss the perfect game!
1: A perfect game. Not a single batter gets on base. It's still the only perfect game in Dodgers history. And with Koufax on the mound, it seems this team is bound to make it back to the World Series. But the very same day Koufax pitches his perfect game... Major League Baseball makes an announcement. The series is going to start on October 6th, and that is going to be a problem for Sandy Koufax. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
1: When Sandy Koufax hears that Game 1 of the World Series is scheduled for October 6th, he cracks a joke.
3: He said to some reporters, well, gotta pray for rain.
1: Because October 6th is also Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement. It's considered the holiest day in the Jewish calendar when practicing Jews are supposed to atone for their sins through fasting and prayer. Jewish players like Hank Ringberg have refused to play on Yom Kippur in the past. And Sandy Koufax has always made his position clear.
3: He never pitched on any of the high holidays. It's just that none of them had previously coincided with the first day of the World Series. To his
1: non-Jewish teammates, this is hard to grasp. Does his religion really keep him from pitching in this big a game?
3: I think they were befuddled by his Judaism. You know, like his decision was hard for teammates to understand. Sandy, of course, has a completely different view. One is, well, so what's the big schmear? Drysdale pitches.
1: Kofax is famously a team player. He knows he's not the Dodgers' only pitcher, even if he is their best. And he's also aware that this statement by refusing to pitch means a lot more than just one game.
3: He was going to be looked at differently because he was a Jew playing in a sport that had precious few of them. And it was done out of deference to his parents, out of deference to the Jewish community. It's hard to remember, but that's only 25 years after the liberation of the concentration camps. And it's hard to grasp now how significant his abilities were in refuting stereotypes of Jewish male nebbishness, and how significant it was to make a statement, which was basically, I'm a Jew, Jews don't work on Yom Kippur, and I'm not going to explain it to you any further because that's my business, not yours, and let the action speak for itself which I thought was as elegant as any pitch he ever threw.
1: October 6th arrives. The sky is clear. It's a crisp Minneapolis fall day. The Dodgers and the Twins take the field. And Koufax? He stayed in his room. Rabbis all over Minneapolis claim to have seen him at their synagogues that day. But Koufax denies it.
3: He told somebody, that rabbi in Minneapolis couldn't have seen me that day unless he was the room service waiter at midnight.
1: Meanwhile, Drysdale, the pitcher who starts in place of Kofax,
0: Dodger Don Drysdale doesn't have his stuff today. Don- One of the most famous lines ever uttered by a Dodger pitcher on the mound, Drysdale tells his manager, I'll bet you wish I was Jewish. But before this game is over, the Minnesota Twins will have them seeing double... So the
1: Dodgers lose game one. Fine. To Koufax, there are still plenty more chances to recover. Recognizing the holiday is worth a loss. The series goes back and forth. By game seven, it's three games to three. This one's winner takes all. On just two days rest, Koufax takes the mound.
2: The man generally recognized as baseball's greatest pitcher, Sandy Koufax, in the last of the ninth must face one of the fine hitters in the game, two-time American League batting champion, Tony Oliva.
1: Tony Oliva's leading the league in hits and batting average. He steps up the home plate.
2: It's a strike. Oliva today has walked and struck out twice.
1: Koufax is on fire. He throws five consecutive fastballs right by Oliva. It's so impressive and shocking that after the game, Oliva goes to the team doctor and gets his eyes checked. But he's told, nope, you can see just fine. Meanwhile, Kofax.
0: Koufax has struck
2: out eight, nine strikeouts for Koufax. He did it. Sandy Koufax gets his tenth strikeout. Every pitcher, of course, likes to finish a game with a strikeout. This was, of course, not a game. This was the seventh game of the World Series.
1: It's a monumental victory for Koufax and the team. But Koufax isn't celebrating.
3: Literally, when you look at the pictures of Sandy on the mound right after the last out, they're all jumping for joy. He literally couldn't jump up.
0: He couldn't raise his arms. Everybody else is kind of like helping him to the bench. Like, hey, let's get Sandy a chair because he just looks so exhausted. I mean, he was
1: empty. Koufax is named the series MVP. He wins the Cy Young Award again. He's Designated Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year and the Associated Press's Male Athlete of the Year.
2: Just about every honor that a pitcher can receive has come to Sandy Koufax.
1: But almost exactly one year to the day after his famous Yom Kippur stand, Koufax pitches in what will be his final game.
3: He told the Dodgers doctor to come to him and tell him when he would no longer be able to lead a normal life when he would no longer be able to button his own shirt, comb his own hair, and brush his own teeth. And in 1966, that day arrives. It's
1: another dominant season. He wins his third Cy Young Award. But that November, he calls a press conference to announce that's it. He's retiring.
2: To walk around with a constant upset stomach because of the pills,
4: and to be high half the time during a ball game because you're taking painkillers out. That's, uh, I don't wanna to have to do
3: that. He wanted to retire and had the imagination to envision a life for himself as meaningful as the one he had led as a star lefty in the rest of his life. And he wanted to be able to have that whole life as a whole person.
1: And in that life post-retirement, Levy's heard story after story of how Kovax does just that. Building meaningful friendships,
3: mentoring younger players. This is what you call a mensch. And in uh, Yiddish, mensch actually means a whole person.
1: Sandy Koufax, the best pitcher in the league, retires at age 30. Only five years after that eureka moment where he finally masters pitching. To fans, this is kind of like the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn all over again. It's a huge loss.
0: It's just a work in progress, like a, learning how to paint. And by the time he becomes this, this masterpiece, fans never had a chance to see him grow old because once he reached the pinnacle, he walked away from the game. And who does that? He goes out with 27 wins in 1966. And that's it. It's been great. See you later. <laughs> fans are mostly left with memories of Koufax, that lefty with the catapult
1: arm. And they really are just memories. There's very little film that exists
0: of Koufax pitching. And so that sort of adds to the legend.
4: There wasn't a lot of footage. It was the highlights from World Series and things like that. And I definitely, you know, ate it up as a baseball fan.
1: That baseball fan is Sean Green, a two-time All-Star who played five seasons for the Dodgers in his 14-year career.
4: People that grew up in the generation that I did didn't get to see Sandy play, but he is such a looming, iconic figure for Jewish athletes and Jewish Americans and Jews around the world.
1: Green himself is Jewish. And when he was playing right field for the Dodgers in 2001, he found himself in the very spot Koufax had been in back in 65. During a heated pennant race against the team's biggest rival, Green had to decide. Would he play on the Jewish high holidays?
4: And I was trying to figure out, you know, what do I do? I'm not too religious, but you know, I have a strong sense of identity and a purpose of this community.
1: Green went to the man himself for advice, Sandy Koufax.
4: He said, look, you know, that's the decision I made. You do what you think's right. And and that was actually really good advice.
1: Green decided to sit the game out, breaking his 415-game playing streak. A few years later in 2004, he'd face another conflict over two games on Yom Kippur. He decided to play on Kol Nidre, the night the holiday begins, but sit out on the
4: day of. I just did what I felt was most consistent with my, uh personal beliefs.
1: Nowadays, there are more Jewish players in the major leagues, but the community is still small. And Green says there's a kind of camaraderie that exists between Jewish players and fans. And Koufax represents that.
4: As long as there's still people alive that grew up watching him, there's going to be all the stories that they tell about how amazing he was and he's Jewish. He's one of us.
1: You think he wanted to take a stand to be some sort of Jewish idol?
3: Quite the contrary. Jane Levy again. I think he hates being a Jewish idol. I think he's embarrassed by it because he's not a practicing Jew in the way that people think you have to be to be called a practicing Jew. Somebody told me that Koufax was eating a ham sandwich and they were crushed. That's their judgment. That's their way of being Jewish. You don't have to be kosher. You don't have to not eat bacon. One of the things about Judaism that I find extraordinary is you get to define what that means to you.
1: For Koufax, what that meant was sitting out on the high holidays, but also eating a ham sandwich if he wanted.
3: He was being a Jew in the way that he was meant to be a Jew. He wasn't being anybody else's Jew. And I loved that.
1: That's empowered the next generation of Jewish players who each practice their religion their own way. Like Jacob Steinmetz, a pitcher in the Arizona Diamondbacks organization. It was something that I looked at, and if he was able to do it, I kind of thought to myself, why not me also? In 2021, Steinmetz became the first-ever Orthodox Jewish player drafted by a major league team. Like Koufax and Green and others before him, Steinmetz has to work parts of his religious practice into his professional life. For him, that means no ham sandwiches. He does keep kosher, and he observes Shabbat. I've been doing the same thing now that I've been doing for the last 19 years. The only difference is on some Saturdays, I walk to the baseball field instead of some other people driving. Practicing religion while playing professional baseball isn't always easy, but neither is competing at the highest level. It might be a little bit of a challenge, but it's sports. There are a lot of challenges. You have to overcome them. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1904, the first Vanderbilt Cup race is held in Long Island, the first major international car race in the US. 1985, Lynette Woodward becomes the first female player for the Harlem Globetrotters. And 2001, Barry Bonds breaks Mark McGuire's single-season home run record. If you know of any other stories from global sports history you'd like us to cover on this podcast, or if you'd just like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod@history.com. Special thanks to our guests. Sean Green, former MLB right fielder and founder of the tech company Greenfly. Mark Langell, Dodgers team historian. Jane Levy, author of Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, and Jacob Steinmetz, pitcher in the Arizona Diamondbacks organization. This episode was produced by Julia Press. It was story edited by me, Kaelin Jones, and sound designed by the Glomer. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber and Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dixney Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.